If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians on Sunday evenings, and Lord willing, I plan to preach most of the next seven weeks from 1 Corinthians 3, continue, or 3 and 4, continuing to study this letter from Paul. Thus far in this letter, we've seen Paul making an extended argument. From chapter 1, verse 10, all the way into chapter 4, Paul is making a sharp and direct case against quarreling and strife and divisions that are happening within this church in Corinth. They were fighting especially about their ministry leaders. They had gotten distracted. They had steered away from the central focus of the Christian faith. And they had let worldly values and worldly desires creep into their minds and into their hearts. And the church had been fracturing because of it. And so to battle against this, Paul has been seeking to realign their priorities. To re-anchor them into that which is of first importance. And the foundation of Paul's argumentation has been a clear understanding of the cross of Christ. Paul says that the cross is what demonstrates to us true wisdom as opposed to worldly foolishness. The cross is what explains to us who God is, who Christ is, who we are, and how we're made right with God. And also then how we are ought to live from that. He goes on into chapter 2 discussing the Holy Spirit which may seem like he himself has gotten distracted. What is this Holy Spirit rabbit trail that he's going on? But it is actually an important part of his argumentation against divisions. The only way that we come to see the cross of Christ as the wisdom of God is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one that reveals to us true wisdom because true wisdom is only spiritually discerned. Thus, if the Spirit's work... The Spirit's prior work is the only reason we've come to embrace the cross of Christ. Then what is to come of our boasting and our pride of self? It's brought to nothing. That's what Paul says. And then he moves on into chapter 3, which takes the theme of the Spirit, of being made spiritual, of having true wisdom revealed to us, and he compares that with what is found in Corinth. And he sees that the Corinthian believers have been actually acting in a way contrary to the Spirit. They were acting like spiritual babies, Paul says. Infants in the faith, which is demonstrated by their divisions and their strife and their quarreling. Those were the fruits of their immaturity. And he moves from there to begin to recast their understanding of who the ministry leaders actually are and what they are actually called to do. Rather than fighting and splitting over our favorite preachers and our favorite leaders, we need to rightly understand their role, particularly in relation to God's work. And their role, that is our ministry leaders, our role is that of a servant, of a worker, of a table waiter, of a slave even. And he uses then, in verses 5 through 9, the analogy of a farm. He says... I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God is the one who gives the growth. Not Paul, not Apollos. Ministry leaders are called to faithfully plant, to sow, to weed, and to water, but God must give the growth or or all of the other labor is done in vain. And thus our faith must rest in God alone and not in mere men. 
And that leads to our text today, verses 10 through 15 of chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. Paul is switching to a different but complementary analogy. He's comparing the work of ministry to the construction of a building that goes up. He moves from an agricultural metaphor to an architectural metaphor. And we'll see as we go through our text that we all have a role to play in this building. We all have a role to play, not just the leaders. So let's begin by reading our text, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Hear the word of our Lord. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be near to us, that you would open our eyes to see the truth, the wisdom, the glory found in your word, and that you would apply it to our hearts, not merely so that we can grow in knowledge, but so that we can grow in love and purity and holiness, that we would be made more and more into the image of your Son, that we would, we would have our hearts and our very affections set upon you and you alone. Keep us from distraction this morning and help us to see that our foundation can only be Christ. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We'll examine our text this morning by asking ourselves four questions. And then moving back and forth in the text to answer them. Four questions for us to consider both as a congregation, corporately, but also as individual believers. Questions for us to reflect upon. And each of these relates to our understanding of foundation. And so first question, what was their foundation? What was their foundation? That's a pretty easy question. I thought I'd start with a softball and get us started. But that's what we're going to do. Christ alone is their foundation. Christ alone was their foundation. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful and well-known verse. In fact, it's actually stamped on the side of our building over here by the live oaks, if you've never noticed. After church, go look. It's there. It's beautiful. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is the fundamental principle that Paul feels like he must re-emphasize for this struggling church. It's what is of first importance. It's significant for every church and every believer of every age to consider because we are always tempted to build our church and to build our lives upon something else. Churches sometimes build their entire congregations, their whole ministry upon preferences. What kind of music they want, what kind of music they don't want. What kind of way they want to dress? What kind of way they don't want to dress? Right? How many services? Of what style? What kind of programs? 
Churches are built upon these things. Or sometimes it's even doctrinal preferences become the foundation. Right? I've seen some congregations get so wrapped up in their doctrinal preferences, right? whether it's Reformed or Wesleyan or even Baptist, that they undermine Christ alone as the foundation of salvation. They can get so tight that they can say, if you're not Baptist, or if you're not fill-in-the-blank, then you're actually outside of Christ. Sometimes the foundation is built upon demographics. We can have a church for rich people, and a church for poor people, and a church for white people, and a church for black people, and we do it in such a way that it actually excludes the others and thus undermines the foundation laid by Christ himself. Or sometimes churches build themselves upon a foundation of otherwise good things, like ethics. We can have a church built upon a common ethical framework or an ethical endeavor. We can have a church devoted to social action or a church devoted to seeking justice or a church devoted to helping the poor or a church built upon pro-life activism. Good things. But if your favorite ethical battleground becomes your foundation... Your congregation is not built upon Christ alone. But the temptation doesn't stop there. Congregations are also tempted to build themselves upon the foundation of charismatic leaders. You see this throughout church history. People will be willing to follow a winsome and articulate leader even right off a cliff. Right? In the early church, Arius was a worship leader who was very capable, very popular. And he nearly split the early church over his false teaching. Around the time of the Reformation, an Italian guy named Socinius, through his unbiblical doctrine of Christ, nearly led astray thousands of people, his non-Trinitarian understanding of Jesus. More recently, Joseph Smith is another, who's led astray millions with his teachings on Mormonism. And don't be fooled by the inclusion of the name Jesus Christ into their church's title, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They have sought from the beginning to lay another foundation than the one that was laid at Calvary. Because Joseph Smith and his golden plates present a God that is very different than the God of Scripture. They present a Jesus that is very different than the Jesus of the pages of the New Testament. Winsome and charismatic leaders can be a subtle temptation to drift away from the only true foundation for the church, which is Jesus Christ. But it's not just congregations. What about each of us personally? Have you ever considered what foundation is holding your life up? Is it Christ or is it something else? Are you building your life upon something in your past? Maybe it was a religious experience that got you really excited. And you point to that, that's my ticket to heaven. Or maybe you're pointing back to your baptism, as if that alone was the foundation that's strong enough to support genuine faith. Or maybe you're building your life upon something in the present. Your job, job's going well. Your family, your wealth, your bank account, even how you feel in the moment. It's easy to build our lives upon these things, and we can be fooled into thinking that we're doing okay spiritually because... Our kids are doing okay because our finances are stable, because our job is secure, or because our conscience isn't bothered by anything. Right? We feel okay. Brothers and sisters, we have to be warned that if we're building our life upon such things, we are in danger. 
Any of those things can be washed away in a moment. They are fleeting. And the only reason we possess any of these blessings is because of the sovereign goodwill of God. You see, like Job, they could all be taken in a moment. And if those are your foundation, so goes the whole structure. We must remember that Christ alone is the only possible and lasting foundation for churches and for individuals. We must be like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock, not the man who builds his house upon the sand. You see, Christ is our rock. He is the stone of our salvation. He is our foundation. He is the only one that will not be moved when the rains come and the floods rise up. That's what we teach our children in the nursery. Do we listen to that parable? Do we sing the song? The rains came down and the floods came up. Trials will come. And if you're built upon worldly or fleeting things, your structure will collapse. But if you are building upon Jesus Christ as your foundation, you will stand secure. You see, no trial can crack him. No stock market crash can undermine him. No calamity can shake his sure footings. He is the only stable foundation. Are you building upon him alone as your salvation? Let me ask you a few questions. Diagnostic questions. When trials come, when things get hard, to whom or to what do you run? Right? When you're really anxious, what are the things that make you afraid? What is it that makes you fidgety? When you're stressed, how do you cope with it? Do you medicate it with drink? Do you retreat into distraction? Just turn on a movie? Play with your phone? Or do you run to Christ as the only sure foundation of your hope? If you're not built upon the rock of Jesus Christ, then be warned that you are on unstable ground and your whole world will collapse either in this life or the next. It will happen if your foundation is not Christ. Christ alone is to be our bedrock, our foundation. That's the answer to our first question. Second question. How was this foundation laid? How was this foundation laid? Look at verse 10. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Great care was exercised in the laying of this foundation. Great care. Paul came to Corinth with intentionality about his work. We see that in the first two chapters of this book. His ministry effort was marked with intentionality, with great carefulness. Chapter 2, verse 2, look on the previous page. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul didn't just show up in Corinth and then kind of, I'll just freewheel it. I'll just wing it. No, he took great care. He decided to know something. He even uses a technical term in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says that he worked as a master builder, which we could say was a foreman, superintendent. He had his eyes on the plans and an eye on the project. He was dutifully overseeing the laying of the foundation. He was checking it, checking the edges to make sure they were good, checking it to make sure it was level, make sure it was plumb, in line with the plans of the great architect. 
In short, he was making sure that the Corinthian church was built upon the doctrine of Jesus Christ and him crucified and nothing else. He took great, great care to ensure that their faith and their lives and their whole congregation was upheld by the deep footings and the reinforcement that can come only as Christ is your foundation. And so we would do well as individuals and as a church to reflect upon ourselves often to ensure that we are founded upon Christ and Christ alone. It's similar to the previous point, but we must take care like a master builder to ensure we're still founded upon Christ. More than once in the New Testament do the apostles encourage us to examine ourselves, to examine our lives, to examine our faith, to test ourselves, to make sure we're still founded upon Jesus Christ, depending upon Him and Him alone for salvation and for life. Have you done that? Do you ever do that? When you look at your life, do you see someone that is growing, that has a faith that is expanding, that's pressing into more areas of life, or have you remained stagnant? And pandemic is not an excuse. We're called to grow. We're called to mature. Do the things of Christ and the things of God bring you joy? Or do you see the things of God and His law as a hindrance to your joy? Something I have to kind of muscle down like the broccoli or the Brussels sprouts. Do you today demonstrate more fruit of the Spirit than you did a year ago or five years ago? Or most pertinently, are you now, this very moment, trusting in Christ alone as your only source of life and strength? Or are you depending upon your faithfulness, your good works, your own virtue? It is good and wise that we reflect upon such things and examine ourselves with great care to make sure we are building upon the right foundation. It must be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Pastor Jordan will be preaching on the nature of genuine faith. And he'll be doing that tonight. And so I pray that you'll come back, that you'll hear what, what he has to say about biblical, joyful, authentic, Christ-dependent faith. How is your foundation to be laid? Well, it's to be laid with great care. Third question. Who laid the foundation? Who laid the foundation of the church in Corinth? And this answer, again, is not difficult. It's Paul. Paul laid the foundation, but what makes that significant? What makes that important requires a little more attention, a little more study for us. Part of the significance lies in the fact that God makes fit any person who would be a foundation layer. God makes suitable any master builder, any minister, any preacher, indeed any believer who would be working on this celestial construction project. And who is this Paul? Who is this apostle? Acts chapter 9 teaches us a little bit about his history. Acts chapter 9 says, But Saul, it's before his name was changed, but Saul, still breathing, that's good, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any disciples along the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So rather than being a master foundation builder, Paul, or Saul, actually started as a man whose personal mission was to destroy the foundation. He was seeking to snuff out the fledgling church to destroy its members and to personally undermine God's heavenly building plan. Now listen to Acts 18. Acts 18, we hear of Paul's work founding the church in Corinth. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, no one will attack you, no one will harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And so Paul goes from being someone who delighted in hunting down God's people into somebody who is specifically called to work in the people of Corinth, work among the people in Corinth. That's the power and the glory of the gospel. It transforms once enemies of God into co-laborers with God. The message of Christ and Him crucified, the only foundation is that message that changes us from those actively opposed, those who are actively seeking to undermine God's plan, into those who actually conform to and love His plan. On our own, we were like salt. We sought to destroy God's work. We, we lied. We stole. We coveted. We lusted. We argued and bickered and demanded our way like the Corinthians were doing. But God has come. He has sent His Son to come and to bear the weight of our sin upon Himself. To take the punishment and the condemnation that we deserve. That's the message of Christ and Him crucified. Not merely that He's died, but that He died in the place of His people. He was our substitute. Our sinfulness, our guilt, all of it has been given to Him on the cross. And His righteousness, His atoning work, His death in our place has been counted to us. And all we have to do to receive these glorious blessings is believe. All we have to do is trust in this great Savior. The Savior proclaimed in this simple message of the gospel. And by trusting, turning away from the sin that so greatly dominated our lives up until that point. God is the one who transforms. God is the one who makes any of us acceptable and fit to be part of this building. Just like Paul, or Saul, transformed into Paul and made him fitting, fitting apostle to the Gentiles. And back in our text, Paul says that he laid the foundation. But even more than that, Paul says that others are building upon it. He says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, but someone else is building now. Someone else is building upon us, upon it. And that's significant for us to see. In the mysterious plan of God, He not only transforms us, but He grants that each worker in His building has a role to play. Each of us is called. Each of us is transformed. Each of us is made part of this building project of God. It's not salvation and then we're done. We're called to be fellow workers, fellow laborers. As one example, Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us, that's plural, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We're used by God to stir one another up. Not bickering and fighting, not discouraging like the Corinthians, but stir one another up to love and good works. And that means that your role in this building... I don't mean this structure here, but in the church of God. 
your role is vital. How could I not take part in the life of the body? Someone might not get the stirring up to love that they need. Someone's spiritual condition may be suffering because I'm neglecting to serve with my gifts. They may not get the encouragement that their soul so needed today. How could I not play an active role in the life of the body? And this is important. The plan of God is for His encouragement, His stirring up to often come through the lips and the presence of other believers. And if I'm regularly absent from the assembly, I'll be preventing part of the body from having the encouragement and the stirring up it was intended to have. That's why the very next verse in Hebrews 10 is against neglecting the gathering of the assembly. All believers have been transformed, just like Paul, and all of us have a role to play in the building up of this body, which is founded upon Christ Jesus. And so let us not neglect our role and rob the body of its needed encouragement and stirring up, and instead lean into the body of Christ, the building project of the Lord, and stir one another up by pointing back to the foundation. We don't point to ourselves. All we do as stones in this heavenly structure is just point back to the bottom. The foundation that was laid for us at Calvary. Finally, moving on to the fourth question. How is this building project tested? How is this building project tested? And the short answer is by fire. But let's look at the full answer, verses 12 through 15. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. This passage of Scripture has been abused and contorted with immense frequency throughout church history. I'll not spend a bunch of time addressing each of those problematic interpretations, but I'll take a moment to explain that this passage has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Roman Catholic doctrine, official dogma in their catechism, teaches that there will be a time after death, after your death, but before heaven, where each person not yet in hell will be purged of their remaining sin by fire in a place called purgatory. And you can see how the imagery from this passage might make someone think of that doctrine. There's a mention of fire, testing, exposing what is genuine and precious, and a mention of the day. But let's think for a minute about that connection. Is Paul here connecting his theology, his understanding of the church, with the doctrine of purgatory as Roman Catholics contend? And I think that he is certainly not. And I think that because absolutely nothing is said about the tormenting of builders. Nothing said about purging the remaining sin from them. Nothing is said about flames being used to purge remaining impurity. Paul here, rather, is speaking about the quality of the work being done by the builders. And thus the emphasis is placed on the clear accountability that will be given for the work of the ministry leaders. Even where the foundation is Christ and Him crucified, like in Corinth, 
there is still temptation, still danger of later shoddy work being done. The workers will have to choose what kind of work they will do. Builders, we're told, will choose gold or silver, costly stone, wood, hay, stubble. And these six different materials are divided into two categories. The precious materials that will survive the testing and the worthless materials that will burn away. Thus, on the last day, every builder's works will be tested by fire. That is, they will be weighed. Weighed in light of God's perfect knowledge and His all-seeing gaze. And they will be exposed for their actual value. Either the works will survive the blaze and they'll have their dross burned off and thus be proved of genuine value. Or they will be burned up, demonstrated as useless, worthless. And so the picture here is not of purgatory, but of a structure A building catching fire and of someone running out. And that person, the builder, will escape. Verse 15, he will be saved. He may be smoldering a little bit. But he will suffer loss. How much of the building that he's been working on, he's been devoting decades of work to this, how much of it will survive the blaze? How much of this work will stand after the trial? How many leaders will make it to heaven with their jackets smoldering because they built their entire ministries upon shoddy materials? This ought to be deeply sobering to anyone involved in any level of church leadership. It is possible to work for the church, to labor on behalf of the church, to labor in the name of Christ with the best of intentions and to have labored with shoddy materials that will prove worthless on the last day. To quote one author, people may come, they may feel helped, they may join in corporate worship and serve on committees and teach Sunday school classes and bring their friends and enjoy the fellowship and raise funds, but still not really know the Lord. If the church is being built with large portions of charm and personality and easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful emotional experiences, and even people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirited, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. The fundamental, non-negotiable, that without which the church no longer is the church, is the gospel. That's God's folly, His foolish message, and it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Brothers and sisters, if we are to be faithful, then we must allow the work of our building to be marked by two clear perspectives. Quality and eternity. Quality and eternity. If our work is to be marked with quality... That means we will be working with the proper materials of gold and silver and costly stones. That might seem strange building materials. But Paul probably chose those because those are the ones that will not only pass through the fires of judgment, but they're also the materials featured prominently in the building of Solomon's temple. The great structure that pictured the church of God and God's redemptive plan, which we'll talk about next week. We build with quality when we build upon the proper foundation and we use proper tools. We must build upon the foundation of Christ alone like we discussed earlier, but we must build with proper materials, the materials of God's own choosing. God's word reveals for us what we're to build with. 
how we are to build the church, how we're to build our lives, and we can't succumb to the temptation to build with whatever's most convenient, whatever's easier, or whatever is more desirable to the world, whatever might get us more followers, more likes, more baptisms. We're called to faithful building according to the design that our master architect has laid out in his word And we're called to do it with prayer-soaked faithfulness to our only foundation, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But we're not only called to build with quality materials, we need to to build with eternity in view. Eternity in view. Our works will be made manifest. God will expose and reveal what we have done. And this helps us to build with greater care. If any... If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 14. God will reward faithful service. God sees your labor. He knows your sacrifice. He observes the ways that you work in ways that nobody else will see. And I'm not merely talking about the pastors and the teachers, though it most directly pertains to them. God sees each of our labors, every one of them done in private, and he will reward you accordingly. So to get really practical, one example, a mother who works in her home every day with the children doing the same old things, changing diapers, washing dishes, managing the house, be encouraged. God sees every good work and he will reward it. You are doing glorious work. You're working according to his plan. Nobody's excited on the construction project for each individual nail, right? That's not exciting. That's not glamorous. But in light of eternity, when the structure is completed, every nail will be rewarded. Every nail will be seen. Or whenever we labor in prayer on behalf of another, nobody else sees it. Remember, God sees it. And He will reward you. When we give generously, God will see it. And He does not forget And of course, Paul is not here confusing works and grace. We read chapter 1, chapter 2. It's all of grace. But we can still be encouraged that God will reward our faithful building. He will reward our slow plodding towards the architectural goal of building up a glorious structure. That's what the heavenly building project really is. And so before I close, I must also say... That it's not just the faithful ones who will have their works tested by fire. The fire is coming. And if you're not building upon the foundation of Christ alone, your structure, your life project will come crashing down. That means that if you're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you will be sent from a fire of testing into an eternal lake of fire in hell. Do not be found burning. Don't be without the proper foundation. Believe in Christ. Hear of His gospel today and trust in His completed work and you will be saved. Come to Christ this morning and trust in His goodness and know that no one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid in Jesus Christ. Are you ready for the final day? If you're building upon Christ as your foundation, you are ready. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work of grace. We thank you for Christ and him crucified in our place. We pray that you would help us to remember to only build with good materials according to your word and with eternity in view. 
We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.